in our way through the Hall of Fame of Faith, and it's the gift that keeps on giving because every time they throw a name out, we're going to find out how they got there. Amen? So, Hebrews 11. Tonight, we're going to look at one verse, verse 32. And then we're going to jump in and talk about some judges tonight. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness. And we thank you for your faithfulness towards us. Lord, I pray that as we have assembled here tonight to hear your word, that the Holy Spirit would open up our hearts and minds, that each of us would get something from you tonight as we sat here and immersed ourselves in the word. Father, I pray none of us would go home the way we came, but we'd leave changed by some insight, some illumination from your word by the Holy Spirit tonight that would change us from the inside out. Father, I ask all this in Jesus' name, and the church said, Amen. Go ahead, buddy, bring the ceremonial water. So, one verse, as we're talking about all of these names and all of these people that have wound up in the Hall of Fame of Faith, verse 31, and we talked about Rahab the harlot, we talked about the Battle of Jericho, and now in verse 32 it says this, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David and of Samuel and the prophets. And if we stop there, we passed up a whole bunch of names there. You see Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. They are judges. Then we talk about David, who is a king, and then Samuel, who is a prophet and a judge. He was the last judge and one of the mightiest prophets of the Old Testament. So what we got here is four names. We looked at Joshua and we saw how faith played its role in the battle of Jericho, made the walls fall flat. We looked at Rahab last week, a harlot who turned her back on the wickedness of those people in Jericho, the Canaanite culture, and sided with the people of God, and God counted it unto her as righteousness. Faith played a very decisive role in each of these situations, and in the life of every person mentioned in chapter 11, in 32, we shift gears a little bit, and the first four names that are mentioned fall into a specific category or group of people within the kingdom of God, and they are judges. We have Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, and they are all judges in the Old Testament. From You can study about them in the book of Judges, and we have... Uh, Hebrews 11.32 uh, lays out some interesting people. Like I said, you have David. He's a king. We're going to talk about him, uh, God willing, when we get through the judges here. And Samuel, an amazing prophet and also a judge. Now, I taught through the entire book of Judges. Uh, it's got to be a couple years ago. But I'm guessing that, uh, you know, we need a refresher on what a judge is. If you're sitting there and you hear the word judge, you think of some guy sitting behind a bench with a gavel, maybe with a black robe on. Maybe you're really crazy and you think of Judge Judy. And she seems to be one of the more sane individuals in our society today. But that's not what God is referring to when he talks about judges in the Old Testament. Uh, we're going to get a refresher on what a judge is. Now, the time of the judges takes place in a period of Israel's history where there was leaderlessness. There was no leadership in the nation of Israel. And because there was no leadership, the people had cast off all restraint. Do you ever notice where there's no leadership? 
you have everybody just doing their own thing. That's why it's so important uh, in, the, in the civilized world, people understood in the military context, you had to have generals, you had to have leaders, you had to have field commanders. Why? Because foot soldiers left to their own devices would commit atrocities. In fact, whenever you've seen modern armies on the battlefield without leadership, they've committed such atrocities. When there is a lack of leadership, there is a, a whole bunch of stuff that goes on and none of it's good. So Israel is in this place where they don't have a leader. And the main theme of the book of Judges is captured in this statement from Judges 17.6. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's the theme of the book of Judges. We studied through Judges, and we looked at every single judge in detail, their exploits, their, their failures, their successes. But Judges 17.6 is the key when you want to understand what a judge is. Why do we need judges? Because in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, when people did what was right in their own eyes, would you think that, you know, they, they were really nice and helpful to each other and took care of their fellow man and, you know, did their part and did their fair share? Anybody? No, man left to his own devices spirals down into selfishness and sin. And that's exactly what happened in Israel there. The people did not honor God. They didn't follow his commandments. They didn't honor his priesthood. For the most part, they did whatever they felt like doing without any fear of God. Now, if that sounds anything like our nation right now, then you're paying attention. Because it could be said of America in that day, you know, we, we, you know, we don't submit to leadership. We don't submit to kings. We're, we're not ruled by kings. But yet, there's somehow in our nation in the West and perhaps in the entire earth, there's a spirit of, I want to do my own thing. Anybody? And it's almost a spirit of lawlessness. And, and, you know, we can see these things in our nation. Israel didn't honor God. They didn't honor the commandments. They didn't honor the prophets. They didn't honor the preachers. They just did what they wanted to do. And that's the mantra of our generation. Do what you want. Worship what you want. Define God however you want. Submit to no one and be accountable for nothing. Now, I just came up with that, but I think somebody could probably use it as a logo in some of these groups with our nation you know just you know god is whatever you want do what you want worship what you want don't answer to anybody don't give an account to anybody don't fear man don't fear god just do your own thing this attitude produced a really bad spiritual cycle in israel's history there was no king they did what was right in their own eyes it produced this cyclical downward spiral of sin and it, it, it made a mess. Now, what happened when they gave themselves over to this lawless spirit and they did what was right in their own eyes, this is what the downward spiral of sin looked like and it happened over and over again. The people would sin against God. Then God would you know, say, repent, and they would refuse to repent. So they would fall into bondage at the hands of their enemies. Their enemies would defeat them, would steal from them, would enslave them. After a little bit of enslavement and beating, the people would cry out to God. God would send them a judge, and he would deliver them. They would come out of bondage, they would serve God for a season, and then they'd start all over. They'd sin again. They'd refuse to repent. They would go into bondage. They would cry out in bondage. God would raise up a deliverer. And every time God raised up a deliverer, that was a new judge. Now, when we look at 
uh, the judges here, and we're going uh, to look at Gideon tonight. I want you to understand the period that these men operated in. There were some men, there were some women. There, God raised them up, and he used them uh, not as robed magistrates to decide legal matters, as we understand the term judge. They were used as instruments of deliverance. If you're taking notes tonight, a judge was an instrument of deliverance sent by God to bring his people out of bondage and back into right relationship with him. I think America could use a judge now. I'm praying that God raises up a prophetic voice, that God raises up a remnant in this nation that will stand and call the nation back to repentance. I think of a man like Jonathan Kahn who's, who's addressed uh, politicians and presidents and Congress and, and called for repentance. Beautiful Prophetic call to repentance, yet seemingly it falls on deaf ears as we go in the downward spiral of sin. During this period of judges, there were 15 judges that God raised up. So 15 times the cycle repeated itself. Anybody like to learn the first time? 15 times the cycle repeated itself. 15 times God raised up a judge and, and they appeared in a, a succession one after another. The first judge was Athaniel, then Ehud, then Shamgar, Deborah, Gideon, Abimelech, Tola, Jair, Jephthah, Isban, Elon, Abdon, Samson, Eli, and Samuel. Those are the 15 judges. Five of the 15 judges... Tola, Jr., Isban, Elon, and Abdon are only mentioned in Scripture, but nothing they did as a judge was recorded. So we're left with details about the other ten judges. Now, when you look at these judges and their appearance and their succession, Gideon was the fifth judge in the succession listed in the book of Judges, but he's the first judge mentioned here in Hebrews 11. So, you know, it was something about Gideon's faith that, you know, God skipped over some, and he goes right to Gideon. Why? Because something about Gideon's faith caught the attention of God, and it landed him in the Hall of Fame of Faith in chapter 11. Here's some basic facts about Gideon. We're going to talk about Gideon tonight because he's mentioned here, uh, the first judge in this verse here. Uh, Gideon was the son of Joash, the Abizarite, and he was from the tribe of Manasseh. He was a judge, a prophet, and a very successful military leader in Israel. Uh, Gideon is still studied by military tacticians. Gideon is still revered by the Jewish people. He won a great victory for the people of God. He was an unlikely hero because he was not a warrior or a man of war, but yet God raises him up. Now, Gideon is Joash's son. And, and he's kind of just, you know, doing his own thing. He's hiding from the Midianites. He's scared of them. He's trying to pick grain. He's trying to, you know, just eke out enough food for his family. He's not bold. He's not speaking up. He's hiding. Uh, Gideon's exploits are chronicled in chapters 6 through 8 of the book of Judges. If you want to know everything about him that the Bible has to say, chapters 6 through 8. We're going to cover some of the highlights tonight. Gideon was called by three names. Now, how many have been called by names? Gideon's names are all good. Gideon is his given name. It was given to him by Joash, his father, and it means great warrior. Now, it's interesting that he's called great warrior because at face value, that's not seemingly the makeup of the man, but he, he turns into a great warrior. He was also given the name Jeroboam. Uh, 
Uh, and that means contender with Baal. And that's from Judges 6.32. Jeroboam, or Jerubbabel, or however you want to say it, he, he stood against Baal. Who's Baal? Baal is the chief idol that was worshipped by the people in the land there. And he takes a stand against Baal. And so that name, Jeroboam, means contender against Baal, or contender with Baal. So God had set him apart to square off against the idols of the land, and his name reflects that. His father, who gave him the name Gideon, also gave him the name Jeroboam. In, for, in 2 Samuel eleven twenty one, Gideon gets his third name. It's Jerob-Esheth, and it means contender with the shame. See, God saw idols in the land and his people worshiping idols as a shame. When you serve the living God and you turn from the living God to worship things carved out of the hands of men, blocks of wood, pieces of stone, when you turn from the living God to worship dead things, it's a shame. And here's Gideon. He is a, a mighty warrior who doesn't know it yet, yet he, he is coming to the place where he stands against Baal. And what does he do? He contends with the shame of Israel. He deals with the thing that is shaming God's people, and he destroys it decisively in a way that God's people can be delivered and brought into right relationship again with the Father. Uh, such a powerful uh, ministry that this guy has here. But all throughout his ministry, all throughout his judgeship, it required faith. Now, God's call to Gideon, just to answer the call of God in his life, required a leap of faith. How many realize to come into relationship with God, it requires a leap of faith? Without faith, it's impossible to please God because he's a what? A rewarder who, who, you know, people, we've got to recognize that he is and we've got to seek him. So we've got to have some faith just to come to him. And here's uh, Gideon, and he's called by God in, in, that, in Judges 6, 12 through 13. Now listen to his calling here. This is the first act of faith we're going to examine. Judges 6, 12 through 13 says this, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him. So an angelic visitation, that, that'll get your attention. He's hiding. He's hiding from the Midianites. He's trying to just, you know, hide some grain because every time Israel harvested their food, the Midianites would swoop in and steal it. Come on, you got to hate people who steal your food. So the angel appears to him and says, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. And Gideon's like, you talking to me? The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did the Lord not bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. So Gideon expresses his heart there. First of all, the angel comes to him, calls a mighty warrior, and he's hiding in fear. That's a problem. Why? Because he's going to have to leap out of that fear and have faith. Faith in what? Faith to believe the pronouncement of God over his life. His heart, he cries out and he basically says, God, you know, we, there used to be miracles. You used to be with us, but now you've abandoned us. Have you ever felt like that? Are you willing to even admit it? Feel alone, feel abandoned, feel your time is done or God used to and there used to be this and I used to be used and I used to have an anointing and I used to see miracles, but now I'm just dead and cold and obviously, God, you've abandoned us. Now, realize, in some ways, he's expressing 
truth. Why? Because God had withdrawn himself from a people who had spiraled into sin. See, when God pulls his presence back, we're going to feel abandoned. But that's for a purpose. Because the minute we feel God withdraw himself from us, the minute we feel the Holy Spirit withdraw himself from us because we've grieved him, we should figure out why and seek God until that relationship is restored. Amen? Rest of Israel was just complaining, ah, God's abandoned us. Well, why? Because you guys are full of sin and your land is full of idols and you're worshiping them. (laughs) So Gideon expresses his heart. The angel calls him this mighty man, this valiant warrior. It's what his name means, but he doesn't feel like it. When Gideon, hiding in the corner, trying to eke out enough food to survive, hears the, uh, the angel say valiant warrior, to him it's like calling a, 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 you know, a giant guy tiny or a fat guy slim. He's like, that's not me. You know, I'm the exact opposite of that, you know, a bald guy. Hey, Curly, how you doing, you know? You know how we used to do it when we were kids? Everything was a joke. Now the hair's falling out. It's not funny anymore. But he's like, I'm the exact opposite of what you just called me. I'm not valiant, I'm not mighty, and I'm not a warrior. I'm trying to get enough grain here so I don't starve, and I'm hiding from my enemies, and I'm not confronting anybody. So, you know, it wasn't sarcasm. God wasn't saying that to be sarcastic to Gideon or to poke fun of him. He wanted Gideon to see with the eye of faith as God saw. God was looking at Gideon, not in his present condition, but he was looking at him through the eye of faith. Now, Romans 4.17 says this, as it is written, I have made thee the father of many nations, talking to Abraham, who didn't have any children. Before him, whom he believed, even God, who quickens the dead and calls those things which be not as though they were. See, God calls those things not as though they were. He looks at a guy hiding and says, mighty warrior. And Gideon doesn't feel like a mighty warrior, but God is just doing what God does. God is looking at Gideon with the eye of faith. Gideon sees himself as weak and as timid and as defeated and abandoned. You've you've abandoned us, God. So I'm leaderless. I'm abandoned. I'm on my own. God sees a valiant warrior. Now listen, God's view of us is often very different than our own, and this can cut both ways. Do you know, there are some people who feel like, you know, God is mad at them, God has cut them off, God is against them, and God God loves people. Amen? That's really weak amen out there. God loves people. God loves sinful people. God loves adulterers and adulteresses. He loves homosexuals. He loves prostitutes. God loves people. And we need to love people too, amen? Oh, no, if they're just like us and believe like us and act like us and they're all right and tidy and nice and neat and there's no sin or at least they hide it well. God loves people. And sometimes God looks and he, he's, you know, I love you, I'm for you, I have a plan for you, I, I want to give you a hope and a future. And some people just feel cut off from God, but it's not true. Now, I said this, you know, God's view can often be very different, and it cuts both ways. Some people think they're doing great. Oh, I'm great, I'm blessed, I got everything going for me, you know. They're living in sin, they're full of sin, they're all about self, but yet somehow they feel blessed. And God looks down And he's like, no, you're not blessed, you're a mess. 
In fact, Revelation 3.17, Jesus says it perfectly when he speaks to one of the churches. He says, because you say I am rich and I've become wealthy and I have no need of anything and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Ouch. Lighten up, Jesus. That's hard. See, Oftentimes, people think they're doing great, and God's view is different. Oftentimes, people think God's against them, and God's view is completely different. We need to find out what God thinks, and let that be the only thing that motivates us, amen? If I'm a mess and I need to repent, and God says, you're, you're blind, wretched, miserable, and naked, then, then give me the gift of repentance, God, so I can come into right relationship with you. If God says, I'm with you, I'm for you, I've got you, just be obedient. Let me have the faith to believe what God says about me. So Gideon had to take a leap of faith just to believe the call of God on his life. The first leap of faith for Gideon and the first leap of faith for us is to believe what God says about us. You're not defeated. You're not an outcast. You're a child of God. He sent his very best for you. Your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. You're on your way to heaven tonight. You have the Holy Spirit in you. Come on. Are there any Christians here tonight? Sometimes throw your pen down and shout a little bit, all right? All these notes we have, we're missing the the opportunity. So he has to take this leap of faith to believe what God says about him. Okay, I'm not a a coward in the corner, shivering and afraid. I'm a mighty warrior. I'm God's man of faith and power. God wants to use me for something. That's the first leap of faith. Gideon makes that leap, and God does use him, and God looks at that, and he counts that as great faith for Gideon. Number two, the second thing that Gideon does that requires great faith is Gideon tears down the idols within Israel's border. There are idols among the children of God, and they are worshiping him. There are idols to Baal. There are Ashtoreth poles that are heathen uh, monuments to Ashtoreth, the fertility god. There was all kinds of uh, Baal and Ashtoreth, wicked beyond description. If I described to you what was included in the worship of these two things, you would see it's totally incompatible with, with a child of God. Yet, Within the land, within the people of God, there were idols and they were worshiping them. They had allowed the world to overtake them. In Judges 6, 25 through 30, you hear about Gideon's encounter with tearing down these idols. Now, this is the first instruction that God gives uh, to Gideon, and it's in Judges 6, 25 through 26. If you want to turn to Judges 6 and follow along, we're going to go through Judges 7 a little bit too. I'm running out of water again, guys. Like a camel tonight. So in Judges 6, verses 25 through 26, here's Gideon's first instruction. Now listen to this. It's going to require faith. Now on the same night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal. Did you hear that? Tear down. Go destroy some property. Tear down the altar of Baal. Where is it? Which belongs to your father. Uh Uh-oh. And cut down the Asherah 
and that is, be, that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this stronghold in the orderly way. And take the second bull and an offering, a burnt offering, with the wood of the asherah, which you shall cut down. So God's first instruction to Gideon is go tear down your father's idol. And when you tear it down, I want you to build an altar there. And when you're done knocking down the Asherah pole, you split it up and use it as wood to offer a sacrifice to me. So tear down the idol and put an altar to God, an offering to God in the land in place of the idol. That's his first instruction here. Now listen to me. It takes great faith to go and rip down this idol. It takes great faith to pull down the asterisk pole. Why? Because, listen to me, when you tear down people's idols, when you pull down the thing that they love, that they worship, they become angry, they become emotional, and they become violent. And if you don't think that that's true, challenge somebody on abortion because that's an idol that they offer the sacrifice of dead children to, just like Ashtoreth, the fertility god. Hello, there's nothing new under the sun. They've been sacrificing babies to demons since time started in Babylon. So go talk to somebody about that and see if you, if you tell them it's a sin, it's murder. You know, just be truthful with them and watch how angry they get. Watch how violent they get. Look, some of you look horrified. Go start a fight. Come on chickens right now i'm just being tongue-in-cheek with you here but you know what i'm talking about you know some of these issues you know talk about human sexuality talk about what the bible says about fornication about adultery about homosexuality about you know sex with children it seems that seems to be the popular thing in our culture now that they're pushing to normalize how far can we go and then challenge, and when you challenge people on this stuff, they get emotional, they get angry. Why? Because it's their God you're tearing down. Don't be confused by this. It's idolatry. It's not as primitive as worshiping in front of a pole or bowing down in front of an altar, but they've made a religion out of it. And when you tear down somebody's idol, you really want to tick people off, go after their idols. And that's the first thing that old timid Gideon has to do. And, and I mean, just think about this. He has to go after this idol here, and it's compounded by the fact that this thing is standing on his own family's land. So what, what is God saying here? If we want to be used of God, we've got to clean up our own house first. See, this is the problem with a lot of Christians who want to do ministry. Their life is a hot mess, and they don't want to address it. And, and we don't want to be confronted about our sin or about our idols. But we want to do something for God. Oh, nobody's saying anything on Wednesday night. My dad's yawning in the first row here. This, this is not encouraging. So look at it. He's got to go to his dad's house. Now, not only he's got to rip down his family idol first. So judgment begins in the house of God. Uh, it's compounding the fact here that not only does he have to confront Baal, he has to confront his own family. He has to deal with the idolatry that's on, you know, in his house first. And, you know, you look at what God asked him to do here. He's like, God, so uh, to please you, I've got to make all the heathen mad in the region i got to desecrate their idol. i got to make the whole entire town mad at me, and I've got to make my mom and dad mad at me too. 
This takes faith, people, man. Most, most of us, we'd be like, ah, oh, I'm going to pass on this one. That's a hard no for me, you know. Um, can you get somebody else? I'm going to go back to hiding from the Midianites. But no, he, verse 27 tells us that, you know, Gideon listened to the instruction, but he was scared. And he was so scared that he did the deed at night. Gideon, you know, he's no dummy. He knows. You do this in broad daylight, you know, uh, you're going to get, they're going to kill you right there. So it says in verse 27 of chapter 6 of the book of Judges, then Gideon took 10 men from his servants, so he took his inner circle, and he did as the Lord had spoken to him. And because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. So he's obedient. He's not disobedient, but, you know, he's careful. Why? Because he's afraid. So he doesn't do it in broad daylight. He goes on a night op, you know. Hey, let's get all dressed up. We're going to do, you know, the Rambo thing. Let's be quiet. Let's go out there. Let's do it in the dark. Shh, shh. Could you imagine? Put yourself in that situation there. You want to obey God, but you're scared. You're scared of the town. You're scared of the heathen. You're scared of your own family. What are they all going to think? He, he's obedient, but he does it in the darkness. Now, in verses 28 through 30, Gideon's fears are realized. It says this, when the people of the city got up early in the morning, of all the mornings, they got to get up early. Behold, the altar of Baal had been torn down, and the Asherah which was beside it had been cut down, and the second bull had been offered on the altar which had been built. So he was obedient, and they noticed right away. Verse 29. So they said to one another, who did this thing? And when they searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, did this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. For he has torn down the altar of Baal, and indeed he has cut down the Asherah, which was beside it. So Gideon was afraid, but his fears were legitimate. Why? Because exactly what he thought was going to happen, happened. God, if I smack this hornet's nest, the hornets are coming out. God says, smack the nest. Boom, here come the hornets. He was right to be afraid. Why? Because he knew what was going to happen, and it did happen. Now, verse 31 and 32 show where there's a twist in the story here. Joash, Gideon's father, is not angry at his son. He doesn't gang up against his son. He actually sides with his son. Now, listen to what he says here. Verse 31, but Joash said to all who stood against him, will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever will contend for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is God, little g, there's a little g there, let him contend for himself, since someone has torn down his altar. Therefore, on the day he named Gideon Jerubbaal, that is to say, let Baal contend against him because he has torn down his altar. So there is the renaming of Gideon, and it happens by his father. Now, his father is the twist in the story because it could have went the other way. His father could have been just as mad. You destroyed my property. You embarrassed me. You tore down the idol. You've made everyone mad at us. Could you see how it could go that way? But that's the twist. And here's what, here's what Joash does. He shames the men of Israel he, because in their hearts, they know that it's wrong to be worshiping these idols. It's amazing in culture, we do things and we fall in line with the culture and we know it's wrong, but nobody says anything. And here, Joash finally stands up and, and he says, are you going to contend on Baal's behalf? 
You guys know better than this. You're going to stand against my son who did a godly thing and, and the God of our forefathers to contend for Baal? Let Baal contend for himself. Look what he says. He ripped down the altar if Baal's a god. Let Baal contend for himself. So he shames those men for standing up for an idol when they shouldn't even have idols in their land. Then he threatens these guys back with death. He says, if you don't back down and if you, if you try and contend for Baal by taking, you know, going after my son, you'll be dead by morning. It's quiet now. Joash was a gunslinger. I like it, amen. He came out on the porch like, Ch -ch -ch. <laughs> take my son? Are you kidding me? Now, it takes guts to choose righteousness, especially when you've been doing wickedness. Joash has been allowing this wickedness to take place on his own soil. Yet he comes to his senses and he's like, enough. Enough with this Baal. Let Baal contend for himself. You want to kill my son over my dead body? He basically threatens them right back. And then he renames Gideon Jeroboam because he contended against Baal. Now understand something. Faith is being obedient to smack that hornet's nest just because God says so. Without thinking, we think too much. Well, what's going to happen and what's it, who's going to take my son? And I think this one will be with me and I think this one will be for me and I think I'm going to lose my job and I think they're going to cancel me on Facebook. Hey! God didn't ask us to figure all that out. He just asked us to do something and be obedient. You never know who's going to stand with you and against you until you are obedient and exercise faith and do what God has said. We need some people who are willing to do what God has said to do, regardless where the chips fall, and let's see who's with us and who's against us. <laughs> oh, a bunch of Methodists here tonight. So Joash makes a stand, takes his side. Gideon smacks the hornet's nest, the ones who he thought would be against him. Some of them are for him, and he makes waves in Israel. And believe you me, and I think you know it, that took great faith for him to do. And God looked at that and honored him for his great faith. Now, I want to cover one last thing about Gideon tonight. Uh, probably th th there are three points of his faith and his judgeship that caught the attention of God. And the, and the last one is the biggest one. He, he had to receive the call by faith. He had to tear down those altars of Baal by faith. And Gideon defeats the Midianites, and he has to do it by faith. And uh, Judges chapter 7, verses 1 through 25, if you're in Judges 6, turn over to Judges 7. We're going to peruse through those verses, and we're going to talk about Gideon defeating the Midianites. So quiet. Whenever I drink, you get quiet. So the Midianites, the perennial enemies of Israel, have assembled against them. Gideon's facing a massive army. He's incredibly outnumbered. There are a whole bunch of warriors, and, and they're encamped against Israel, and they put the battle in array. And here's Gideon having to defend Israel at this point. Now remember, he doesn't see himself as a warrior, first of all. He's untested and an inexperienced soldier. He's, he's not battle-hardened. You know, he looks at the group that's fighting with him, and, you know, every bit of this requires a ton of faith. Gideon, uh, he needs faith to fight this battle. In Judges 7, verse 2, 
It says this, and the Lord said to Gideon, you know, it's a massive army. Israel's mustering this little army, and this is the Lord's response to the few people that have showed up. He says to Gideon, the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to hand, them, to hand Midian over to them. Otherwise, Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has saved me. So even though the odds were against the people of God, God knew the pride of the people's hearts, that if it was even close to looking like it was plausible that they could win, they would try and take the credit for it. And so God looks at the, the small army that showed up to face the big army, and he says, there's too many of them. Now realize if you're Gideon and you see this small army showing up, you're like, oh, I pray that more come. God, what do you think? I think there's too many. Isn't it just like God to say the exact opposite of what we're thinking? My ways are not your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. My thoughts are, I need a bigger army. God says, you got too many people here. And so there's the first leap of faith. I don't know what kept Gideon from screaming and running into the wilderness never to be seen again. But, you know, God says what he says, and he begins to uh, weed out the people. In verse 3, God tells Gideon to say, who's ever scared can go home. Now, you never say that to an army before a fight. What you do is you encourage an army. You, you get on a horse and you paint your face blue like Mel Gibson in Braveheart, and you ride back and forth, and you say, freedom, and all that stuff. You shake your sword, and you get everybody excited. We're going to die, yeah. You don't say, you know, if you're scared, why don't you go home? Well, that's exactly what he tells him to say, and guess what? 22,000 people go home. Where are you going, Wilbur? I'm a coward. I'm going home. You know, my wife just cooked some good stuff. I'll see you later. Good luck, guys. 22,000 go home. Now, there's 10,000 left. So more went home than stayed. So already, <laughs> Israel's full of cowards. More than half the army was scared. And given the chance, they went home. 10,000 people are left. Gideon's thinking, oh, man, how am I going to do with 10,000? He's trying to figure out, divide them up. Do I have enough leaders left? God says, uh, Gid, there's too many. Still too many. I mean, this Midian army is huge. I, I'm not sure if I, uh, if I can find the exact numbers, but, but it was a massive army. And God says, you know what? The 10,000 that are left are too many, so I'm going to give them a test. And God tests them by the way that they drink. Now, uh, in, in chapter 3, who's scared? 22,000 are scared. 10,000 left, God says, we're going to play drinking games now, okay? So take them all down to the water and let them drink. He said, we're going to divide them into two groups. Don't tell them. It's a double-blind test. Here we go. We're going to have some people are going to kneel down, and they're going to lap the water with their hands. What does that mean? They're going to get down like this, and they're going to go, okay? They're the lappers. So the other group are going to be the kneelers. They're going to do this. You ever done that? Don't lie in church. So you got the kneelers and the lappers. God says all the ones who put their face in the water, send them home. Why? Because they're not good soldiers. You get on your hands and knees and you put your face down, you can't see anything, you can't hear anything, you just risk security for a little bit of ease and comfort. 
And God says, that's not the type of warrior I want. These guys that kneeled down and they drank like this, they were able to look and see and keep their wits about them and still stay ready. They had the right heart. And God says, those guys that kneel down, send them home. So he sends them home, and 9,700 go home. Gideon is, at this point, eating Tums by the handful. There are only 300 guys left, and God's, God's chipper about it, verse 7. And the Lord said to Gideon, I will save you with the 300 men who lapped, and I will hand the Midianites over to you. So here's, you know, you thought the 300 was at the Battle of Thermopylae or it was King Leonidas. No, it was Gideon's guys. 300 guys that had a warrior's heart. Out of all the thousands that showed up, you know, it's down to 300. And in verse 19 through 25 of chapter 7 in the book of Judges, God lays out the battle plan. So Gideon's like, well, surely God's got a really good foolproof battle plan here for this 300 that, you know, he left me with. And the battle plan that God shares with Gideon is a lot like the battle plan he implemented at Jericho. It wasn't logical, it was logistically improbable, and it was militarily insane. So it doesn't make any sense. It's not even plausible the way victory is going to come. But basically what Gideon is told is, I want you to take the 300 Rambos we got left, and I want you to give them all trumpets. So now we're having a concert. I want you to give them all trumpets and glass pitchers. I want them to hold torches, and I want them to shout. So what the plan is, is when it's dark, we're going to come towards the Midian camp. 300 guys are going to blow trumpets. Then they're going to smash these glass or pottery or whatever it is. They're going to smash these pitchers. They're going to hold torches in their hand, and they're going to shout. And what they're going to shout is, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, if you ain't getting this, I, you know, God's ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And here's another perfect example. You know, this is your plan, God? You left me with 300 guys. If you want to kill me, just kill me. No, 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 no. Get the horns, get the pitchers, get the torches. Limber up your vocal cords. You're going to do some shouting. But that's the plan. So God gives Gideon the plan. It takes faith to receive the plan. It takes faith to have a straight face to, to pitch the plan to the 300 guys because they didn't hear God, right? God didn't say it out loud. He didn't have a meeting. Everybody sit down. We're going to brief you, and here's what we're going to do. No, he spoke to Gideon. Now Gideon's got to go pitch this to the 300, and, and, and they got to they follow him. There's a lot of miracles here. There's a lot of faith here, but he does. He's obedient to God. Why? Because he, he doesn't have strength in himself. He doesn't have strength in the, the, the might of his own arm. He doesn't have strength. You know, he doesn't think I'm a mighty warrior. I could win this battle. Just let me plan it out. No, he has no confidence in himself. He only has confidence in God. He's the perfect guy for God to use. He's dumb enough to listen and do what he's told. And he shares it with the 300, and apparently they buy it because I don't see anywhere in here where any of them went home. 
So they stayed and they had faith and they believed and they partnered with Gideon and that's a miracle and that takes great faith. Now by faith, Gideon executes God's battle plan just as instructed and here are the results that are chronicled in verse 21 through 22. It said, and each stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran crying out as they fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord, the Lord set the sword one against another, and even though the entire army fled the field. So what happened here is they go and they do what God said, and they, they, they blow their trumpets, they smash their pitchers, they yell a sword for the Lord and Gideon, and what happens? The army down in the valley is put in a giant panic. What's the probability of that? What's the plausibility of that? Zero, but with God, nothing is impossible. It turns out that these men were already horrified. They were having dreams about Gideon. They knew the God of Israel who delivered them out of the hand of uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They had heard the stories and they were really cowering in fear even before the men of Israel got there. So when the 300 did their thing, it sounded like there were so many more people and the breaking of the glass and, and the torches and the shouting. The Midianite army is in total confusion. They break ranks and they flee. Then it says what? The Lord turned their swords against each other. They began killing one another in the confusion of battle, in the fog of war. They, they kill each other. So Israel doesn't even have to fight. These guys are so confused, they break ranks, they're running all over the place, and they begin to fight and kill one another. Then they go into a full retreat, and they're scattered in every direction. And Gideon's standing there. Amazing. The guys must have been like, oh, it worked. So they call in reinforcements and they trap them at the river and they cut them off and they kill them with the sword and they totally obliterate this massive army with 300 men who had trumpets. With God, nothing is impossible. Let me tell you, if, if I do anything in my life that approaches the great faith that Gideon displayed right there, I'll be happy. But it took faith to answer the call. It took faith to challenge the idols and to tear them down. It took faith to defeat the Midianites, but he did. He, they were defeated. God delivered them into his hand. Israel was free. The enemy was destroyed. The people came out of bondage, and they served God for a season. And then the cycle repeated itself again. But it, Gideon's great faith landed him in the Hall of Fame. God willing, when we get together next time, we're going to talk about the next judge, Barak. If you want to go in the scripture and study about him, I encourage you to. But Barak does some incredible things with Deborah, uh, and God uses him mightily. He's the second judge mentioned in chapter 11. He's the second judge that made it to the Hall of Fame. So we're going to look at him. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, we just thank you, Lord, that you use people who are not strong in the flesh, but you use people who are humble. Gideon didn't think much of himself, but his name was that he was a warrior. And God, you saw him by the eye of faith. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters tonight that we would all begin to see ourselves like you see us, by the eye of faith, that we're more than conquerors, that we're the head and not the tail, that we're part of the fellowship of the unashamed, that we're children of God, that our names are written down in the Lamb's book of life, that we're sons and daughters of the Most High. Father, I come against every lie of the enemy that would tell us we're nothing. The enemy made Gideon feel like he was less than nothing, and our enemy tries to do the same thing. 
But greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. Let us have the courage to confront the idols of our nation, to confront the idols of our land, to stand against them, and to watch our God take the place of idols as we stand against them and expose them for the emptiness that they are. Give us the faith to obey you and to be obedient to your instructions in our lives, even when it makes no sense at all. And help us to see the battle is the Lord's in all things. We're more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Give him praise tonight.